Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Call it the curse of the young guns. In 2010, three up-and-coming, ambitious Republican congressmen published a book with that title. They anointed themselves the new generation of conservative leaders and claimed to be changing the face of the Republican Party. Instead, the Republican Party changed them. Eric Cantor was House Majority Leader when he lost his primary in 2014 and retired from politics. Paul Ryan made it to Speaker, but he served just three years before retiring from politics. The last young gun standing, Kevin McCarthy, has made history, but not in the way he would have hoped when he co-authored that book 13 years ago. He's the subject of the most protracted election for the Speaker of the House of Representatives since before the Civil War. I'm John Prudhoe, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can this Congress get over its chaotic start? The 118th Congress is, so far, a shambles. Though Republicans secured a narrow majority in the midterm elections in November, a contingent of hardline congressmen have banded together to deny Kevin McCarthy the 218 votes he needs to obtain the speakership. The House can't start the small matter of governing the country until the debacle is resolved. What does all this mean for how things will work in Congress this year? With me this week to discuss the McCarthy muddle and try and make some sense of it are Idris Kaloon in Washington and Charlotte Howard in New York. Charlotte, how are you doing? Happy New Year. I am well. I'm happy to be back in New York. I was away for a few days. Uh, my favorite news story from my hometown currently is about Mayor Adams receiving repeated warnings from the health department about rats in his house. I don't know if you've followed this breaking news story, but... Um, New York has a huge rats problem and has enlisted McKinsey and others to help with it. But the mayor's own house is overrun with rats. And his political adversary, um, the person who ran against him in the mayor's race, himself has 16 cats in his house. And he's now proposing that there be cat colonies to help deal with the rat problem, including recommending that Mayor Adams make his own home, not just home to rats, but also cats. So you heard it here first, next week's cover of The Economist, but I thought you all should know about this development. That's such a good story. Idris, how are you doing? Happy New Year. How was your first Christmas in the UK? 
Um, yeah, it was good. Very English, very wet and rainy. Um, not at all white and snowy as I think it's supposed to be. Um, but you know, we were by the coast, which is a pretty nice place. Uh, if you can see it, there are only four hours of daylight. So, um, you know, that, that limits your options, but the fish and chips are good. And Idris, you returned to a nice peaceful time in Washington. Yeah, this was the first time in living memory, probably of anyone's living memory, that um, we've gotten stuck at the very first thing that Congress is supposed to do, which is pick a new speaker. So it's been fascinating to watch uh, a kind of politics that hasn't existed for 100 years reemerge, although the reporting of it has been a bit boring because you just copy and paste what you wrote the last day. Uh, and it works for the subsequent days. I mean, you just update the numbers, right? That's what. That's basically what we did. We said one day, three votes. Then we did two days, six votes. And now it's three days and 11 votes. But the analysis really hasn't changed. And we're recording this on Friday morning, US time. So there's a possibility that something significant changes before the podcast is published. Idris, you've been charged with watching and writing about this for this week's Economist. There's a kind of personal drama here around Kevin McCarthy, but it's also the case that not having a speaker kind of has a pretty big effect on Congress's ability to function, right? Yeah. Without a speaker, the House is um, in a state of limbo. And precisely what that means and how we get out of it requires a lot of knowledge about the somewhat arcane rules that no one has had to think about for a while. Um, The best person that I know to speak to whenever there are questions of congressional procedure is Molly Reynolds, um, who's a scholar at Brookings, because she knows them just inside and out. And we talked on Thursday, just before the House met for the third day uh, of failing to elect a speaker. Because the House of Representatives, everyone in the House turns over every two years. So unlike the Senate, where two-thirds of the Senate's membership continue on from the previous Congress, everyone in the House, um, their terms end at the end of the Congress. And so there's a everyone needs to be sworn in anew, and they need a new set of rules in order to organize themselves, um, to do everything from set the terms for committees and committee assignments in order order to um, have kind of all of the provisions that really govern how the House works. And before we can get to the point where the new House adopts those new rules to organize itself and start, again, assigning members to committees and have the committee start working and have um, individuals really just start doing the, the legislative work of the new Congress, first, the Congress needs to elect a speaker. So Kevin McCarthy has tried six times uh, to become speaker and has failed. Uh, You know, by the time that this goes out, you know, it might be another three or four rounds on top of that. But I wanted to ask you, where do the rules, he's getting stuck because no one is coming up with an absolute majority, but where do the rules requiring that majority come from? And I did a bit of reading and I found that on two occasions, albeit before the Civil War, the House was able to vote and say the speakership just went to the plurality winner because they also deadlocked then. Could something like that happen here, theoretically? It is possible for the House, by majority vote, to change the terms under which they elect the Speaker. And this gets at what you were um, discussing. So one thing that they could do, um, and they did a couple of times um, in the past, is adopt a resolution by majority vote that would say the winner of the speakership election is not the person who gets numerical majority of votes cast by members for someone by name, but rather the plurality winner of of such a vote. Um, It's probably the case that to 
adopt such a resolution changing the rules for the way that the speaker is elected. That would require the votes of some Democrats. Um, I think the anti-McCarthy caucus is not likely to go along with that change. But you could imagine some Democrats cooperating with some Republicans to say, okay, we're going to um, we're going to make this change in part because it's a little bit of a high risk, high reward strategy. If they made that change and they moved to trying to elect the speaker on a plurality vote. It could elect Kevin McCarthy if enough of that anti-McCarthy block changed their mind. But if they don't, if they sort of stay dug in, then a plurality vote at this point would elect Hakeem Jeffries, uh, the Democratic leader speaker. I wanted to ask about, um, you know, the holdouts, because the reasons that they're giving for why they're not going along with electing um the leader of their party, are also based on procedural issues, right? So if you look at um, their complaints, a lot of them are fairly nitty-gritty. They want things like a 72-hour debate period on legislation. They want germaneness requirements that basically keep legislation from having too many extraneous measures. And they want the ability to offer amendments on the floor. And whether or not you think that's the real reason they're holding up Kevin McCarthy, do you think that there is something to their substantive point that the House of Representatives doesn't debate legislation in the way that it used to. Yes. So it's absolutely the case that power in the House of Representatives is more centralized in the hands of party leaders than it was in earlier periods in American history. We've seen other periods of time with very centralized party control. We've seen periods of time with less centralized party control. It's also true that um, much of the legislative process in the House is very tightly controlled. Um, so very few things come to the floor with uh, opportunities for substantial amendment. Um, basically, nothing has come to the floor of the House in several years under what we call an open rule, which is any member could offer any amendment uh, subject to the House's germaneness requirements. So the folks who say that the legislative process is very um, centralized in, in the hands of party leaders, um, they're not wrong. Um, it's important to think about why and how have we gotten to this place. And in most cases, um, I would argue it's because members themselves, obviously not necessarily these members who are critical of um, Mr. McCarthy or who are holding out as votes against his speakership. But in general, the way that leaders get power is because rank and file members are willing to give it to them. And in the case of the House floor, it's often in, in recent years been because vulnerable, electorally vulnerable members um, of the House majority party, whether that's Democrats or Republicans, have wanted to be protected from having to take tough votes. They don't want a legislative process where members of the other party can freely offer amendments that um, might embarrass them, that might make um, their lives electorally difficult. That's one of a set of reasons that we've um, we've gotten to this point. But the reason that the legislative process is as tightly controlled as it is, is not just because leaders are kind of out to get their rank and file members. Um, it is a reflection of kind of the underlying politics. So do you think it's fair to say that we're in the middle of one of these episodic battles of where power resides? Or do you think that it, you know, the substantive reasons are not just about procedural issues? Um, and both. Um, so I think it's, um, I think it is the case that, um, again, over kind of the long sweep of American history, we have fluctuated between periods of very centralized party control and periods of less centralized party control. Um, I think that one um, outcome of this current episode may be some more decentralization um, in the House. I also think that some of the folks who um, are opposing Kevin McCarthy are doing so for reasons beyond simply that they have procedural complaints. I think one big 
big um, issue is also that the some of the, the folks simply don't trust Mr. McCarthy. And so even when he makes promises as part of these negotiations about uh, what he's willing to do to get their support, there's a concern that, that he's not going to follow through, especially on some of the questions that would really interfere with the ability of the House, especially under divided government, to complete some of the responsibilities of governing, like raising the debt limit. Charlotte, just picking up there on what Molly said about trust with McCarthy, I think you can't understand this story unless you understand a little bit of his political career and his decade-long effort to win this office of House Speaker. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at McCarthy, like so many politicians, he's interested in political survival and ascension. And he has for years been trying to court the right wing of the party with mixed success. They prevented him from becoming speaker uh, several years ago. You saw in the waning days of John Boehner's days as speaker, McCarthy trying to both be an effective whip while also protecting his reputation within the far right of the party. But I guess what I was really struck by this week is that you have this remarkable phenomenon in that the story of the midterms was that the far right failed. And the story of the 118th Congress is that the far right is in control. Not that they're in control because voters want them to be or because they substantively are going to pass some big piece of legislation, but just because they're experts in chaos. And so I look forward to getting into more of the details. But I think it's worth remembering at the onset of our discussion that this is a wing of the party that had a disastrous midterm election. And yet here we are. Idris, you've written about this a bit already, and you've been following the sorts of things that the holdouts have been saying about McCarthy. What are their particular complaints? Um, So it's not necessarily that Kevin McCarthy is hostile to their brand of politics. He's actually worked really hard to try to court people on the far right of his party. I mean, he did a lot of, of work trying to get Jim Jordan, who many of you might remember as a quite prominent uh, Tea Party-ish congressman on side. And he's also spent a lot of time trying to get uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene to support him. And both of them have. Uh, I think the problem that a lot of the Freedom Caucus folks, and that's the affiliation of the majority of people who are opposing him right now, is somewhat couched in procedural issues, but also I think is just that basic lack of trust. Um, a month ago, The New Yorker did a long profile of Kevin McCarthy, and they, they talked to Bill Thomas, who was the representative who Kevin McCarthy got to start with. And he's basically turned against his protege now. And, and his quote, I think, summarizes why people don't like Kevin McCarthy right now. He says, Kevin basically is what you want him to be. He lies. He'll change the lie if necessary. How can anyone trust his word? So I, I think that, you know, that that's the fundamental issue, really. So I think, you know, a lot of it could boil down to the specific leadership uh, abilities or disabilities. It could also be that, you know, the far right has a different attitude towards systems than the far left, um, which might also be worth thinking about. Yeah, it seems to me there's a McCarthy-specific element to this story. And then there's also a dynamic that's been operating within the House Republican caucus for a while, but probably gotten even worse. So if you look back at John Boehner's memoir, he was um, speaker in the early 2010s. He was talking about his own hell no part of the Republican caucus. And he said, what they're really interested in is chaos. 
Every time they vote down a bill, they get another invitation to go on Fox News or talk radio. It's a narcissistic and dangerous feedback loop. And Charlotte, maybe I'm just saying what you said already in, in a different way. But these 20 or so congressmen, this is the way they get to exercise their power, right? They're not trying to do anything particularly constructive here. But the, the power they have is a stopping power and, and they're happily using it. Yeah. And maybe that's why the, you know, the squad certainly had enough votes to thwart Nancy Pelosi a number of times in the last two years. That's the far left of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. Um, the closest thing to the Freedom Caucus equivalent. But I think you're right. The difference there is that their philosophical orientation is towards, you know, the construction of new governmental programs, which it requires um, quite a lot of coordination and quite a lot of convincing. Whereas if your attitude is, is basically purely anti-system, then I think you're more comfortable with with these sorts of tactics, which, you know, maybe even you could trace to Ted Cruz's arrival in the Senate and the sort of, you know, parliamentary delay uh, just to make the point and using that as, as the sort of launching pad for a prominent political career, which I think you see some of the people who are currently stopping McCarthy are definitely just lapping in all the attention that it's giving them. Okay, let's pause things there for a moment. We've heard a lot this week that this is the first time in 100 years that a vote for Speaker has failed on its first attempt. We'll find out exactly what happened in 1923 in just a moment. But first, why not make it your New Year's resolution to subscribe to The Economist? If you had an Economist subscription, then you would have read Idris's article published in November, which predicted all of this. Charlotte, Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from The Economist recently? Well, I would continue to point our readers to our Ukraine coverage, which was just excellent. I want to go back, though, to the Christmas issue, which was published before the holiday and is a double issue that features all kinds of long stories. And our colleague Aaron Braun, who is a frequent guest on Checks and Balance, wrote this great piece about uh, murder in the American West that I'd recommend everyone go and read. It's a climate change whodunit. It's really good. And we'll probably have a Checks episode on it at some point in the future. Idris, how about you? I really liked Daniel Knowles, um, our correspondent in Chicago, who this week offered up a defense of the city uh, from its detractors, which I thought was pretty compelling. A lot of the time, the only thing you hear about Chicago is, is negative. And I think he mustered all the reasons that things are going well for the city um, quite well in a way that um, if you're sitting on the coast, you might not have really registered. Yeah, it's a great piece. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. And while we are congratulating our colleagues, I think we ought to have a moment for Charlotte's two-part Alaska series, which you'll find in your Checks and Balance podcast feed if you haven't listened to it already. It's really, really good. Republicans moved in on Washington with great hopes. Harding stood for a return to normalcy. The 1920 election was an unalloyed success for Republicans. On the coattails of Warren Harding's landslide presidential win, the party bolstered its majority in the House and the Senate. But, as so often happens, the president's party suffered losses in the midterms two years later. Republicans' margin over Democrats in the House fell from 171 to just 18. The new Congress was sworn in in March 1923, but didn't actually meet until that December. In the interim, America suddenly had a new president. On the political scene, there had been some changes. Harding's death came as a great shock to the nation. 
It was entirely unexpected. In August 1923, Warren Harding died and was succeeded by his vice president, Calvin Coolidge. The tumult for the Republican Party continued. The progressive wing of the party, yes, some Republicans once proudly called themselves progressive, saw these midterm losses as a boon for their cause. And when it came time to vote for Speaker, they made their presence felt. No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a Speaker has not been elected. Scenes in the House this week would have been familiar to the 1923 contingent, with the Republican candidate for Speaker repeatedly failing to get enough votes. Frederick Gillette, a Massachusetts lawyer, had been in the House for 30 years and Speaker for four. Like Kevin McCarthy, he was an establishment sort of figure. But the votes against Gillette weren't the result of contempt or animosity in quite the same way. At the time, the New York Times wrote that the little flurry of opposition to Speaker Gillette was in no sense personal to him. The opposition in 1923 came from 20 members or so on the left of the Republican Party. Like today's hardline rebels, they said their opposition was rooted in a desire for procedural changes. And in the end, it was as simple as that. When, after two days of wrangling, the leadership promised to merely listen to the holdout's demands, the rebels backed down and voted for Gillette on the ninth ballot. A century on, it's proving much harder to end the stalemate. So, Idris, casting your mind back to 1923, at the time, the Republican Party was somewhat split between progressives who were really the inheritors of Teddy Roosevelt's bull moose independent run when he became progressive and decided to stand against the Republican Party's official candidates. So at the time, you had this strange situation where you did have you know, a sizable progressive wing in the Republican Party. Yeah, that's right. I think one commonality to the very few occasions on which something like this has happened is that there is a real fracturing um, within the parties. So, you know, the way that the rules are set up, you need an absolute majority. And if you have something that approaches not quite the two-party system, it becomes harder to actually get an absolute majority. You know, we're seeing that now where the Freedom Caucus might otherwise in a, in a European country might be a, a more um, AFD-style party like they have in Germany, a fringier sort rather than part of the Republican establishment. That's what's driving this this issue. In 1923, we had a pretty clear split within the parties. And then the year that I've been reading a lot more about has been 1855, which if you think this saga was bad, uh, resolving that speakership took two months and 133 uh, ballots in order to do it. And there, too, you had a, an issue where there was a fracturing. Uh, there were actually four parties that had elected sizable shares of, of representatives to Congress uh, because the Whig Party was dying out. So there were the Democrats, the Republicans, the American Party, which was also called the Know-Nothing Party, and then a kind of obscure one called the Opposition Caucus, which was basically just opposed to Franklin Pierce, uh, who was the president then. And basically, the inability for anyone to muster an absolute majority meant that this balloting dragged on for about two months uh, up until they finally appointed Nathaniel Banks as the speaker. I want to just interject here to say that 1855 was in the lead up to the American Civil War and the reality that we are comparing our current... I don't mean at all to suggest that we're headed towards a civil war, but it does suggest a 
huge degree of dysfunction that um, in in prior episodes resulted in the most dramatic fracturing within the country's history. So it's just very extraordinary that this happened this week and bizarre. No, yeah, you reminded me that was the point that I was going to build up to. The the divide was entirely over slavery. It was about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, about the Wilmot Provisio, and, and what, whether you thought these things were appropriate or constitutional. And it was all basically a prelude to the Civil War. Um, you know, we're not there yet. We're not going to have a civil war between Trumpists and, and Republicans. Um, but it does show that it was born out of the kind of extreme polarization that we, we might have a version of today. And Idris, that sort of episode where you had lots and lots of rounds of voting for Speaker was pretty common before the Civil War. So was there some rule change? Or was it just the fact that the Civil War left the party system or, or changed the party system entirely? And we kind of came out of the Civil War essentially with a two party system with one party very dominant? I think that was it. I think it was that before the Civil War, you know, with the start of the American Republic, you had the Federalists, then you had the Anti-Federalists, you had the Whigs, you had the Democratic Republicans, and know-nothings. And, you know, it was a lot more flux. But after the election of Abraham Lincoln, the two-party system uh, that we know of today, Democrats and Republicans, was largely the one that held. And there were, you know, breakthrough parties and these sorts of things, but never, I think, to the degree that it reasonably split Congress. I have a question for you, Idris, which is, do you think that this is going to precipitate the reckoning within the Republican Party that some bystanders have wondered about for years, basically, since Trump's ascent. There was this moment in 2016 in the run-up to his election where commentators were saying things like, oh, the Republican Party is going to be in crisis now. Um, And what you saw instead was this dramatic unification behind Donald Trump. And I'm wondering, as the knock-on effects, not just, of course, this January 6th, there's the defeat in the midterms, and now this further uh, demonstration of disorder and uh, inability to do what I think is kind of the basic work of governing. Do you think that this will precipitate any substantive change within the party? Or what's the knock on effect for the GOP? I'm not sure because of the origin of the problem. So the people who are denying Kevin McCarthy the speakership are you know, the Trumpiest lot of representatives. They are the ones who were most intimately involved with uh, trying to overturn the election results in 2020. And, you know, they're basically, uh, their opposition is grounded in the fact that they think that Kevin McCarthy is too squishy. It's not that Kevin McCarthy is, is facing a sort of mass insurrection from the troops because he exhibited a degree of spinelessness with Trump and and was too uh, sycophantic with him, um, which I think would have prompted the kind of, you know, if Liz Cheney had basically had more people go along with her when she started basically saying that she thought Trump was responsible, if, if that had morphed into a bigger movement than it was, I think you could have seen the Reformation. But be- if Matt Gates is leading the charge, Matt Gates, the representative from Florida, I don't know that it's going to prompt the kind of soul searching that people think that uh, the Republican Party ought to have. Well, presumably, the House of Representatives will get a speaker at some point. So we will be back in a moment to consider whether Congress can get over this terrible start once that happens. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So, Charlotte, this is not a very auspicious start to the 118th Congress. Is it likely to get better from here? Well, that was the question that was on my mind as well. So I called up James Bennett, who's our Lexington columnist and who was on the road in Mississippi, but uh, happily made time for me. And when we spoke on Thursday evening, we started our conversation by talking about what this chaos at the start of the 118th Congress might mean for the prospects of it being able to achieve anything in the next two years. It certainly doesn't bode well for a high degree of collaboration and progress. It actually makes the situation seem rather hopeless. Um, Given the power that this tiny group has to bring any activity to a halt and, and the willingness, if not eagerness, they're displaying to wield that power, it makes one wonder why anybody would want the job of Speaker of this House. There were some items that there seemed to be broad Republican support for pursuing. So, for instance, the investigations, be they of Hunter Biden or the withdrawal from Afghanistan, do you think that those will move forward or even those top Republican items will be delayed? Oh, no, I think the investigations are going to press ahead. And if anything, they're likely to be more of them and even more aggressively waged particularly if Kevin McCarthy makes it through having made all the concessions that he is apparently making, including giving more seats on key committees to members of this kind of berserker caucus. Look, it should be said, it's it's right and fitting that the House should exercise oversight over the federal government and conduct certain investigations. You know, the problem that they've got is that the investigations they want to do, some of the ones that they're most hot about are ones that are not, are very popular with their base into the Biden family and so forth. To the country as a whole, they're likely to look petty. And what I keep thinking is the Democrats' investigations of Donald Trump damaged his presidency, but they didn't result in a durable majority politically for the Democrats. I just don't think the American people generally respond well to very backward-looking kinds of investigations like that. So that's a fair point, that obviously Congress does have a duty to, to provide proper oversight. I think it's one of those interesting phenomenon where half of the country really cares about something and then the other half just doesn't understand it at all. So I look forward to a future episode where we can break down the worthiness or frivolity of a Hunter Biden investigation. But there's a substantive, there's a real substantive problem that could arise if the government fails to raise the debt ceiling. That has real knock-on implications across the economy. Do you see that now as much more likely than it was before? I... I, I, (laughs) It, it seems like the path to getting that ceiling raised is going to be even more strewn with obstacles than we imagined a week ago. And it's crazy. I mean, these so much of the anger you're hearing from this hardcore conservative group is actually in some ways directed at the Senate Republicans. You know, it's, it's anger about the spending bills that were bipartisan in many cases that they agreed on in the last Congress. And if, in a sense, they're going to be taking revenge on, on the Republicans in the Senate as well, too, by resisting raising the debt ceiling when the time comes. And I think they just feel that righteousness is on their side. They certainly have shown a high degree of indifference to the consequences of their utter refusal to compromise. 
Yeah, I guess politicians specialize in self-righteousness, right? It's sort of a, a an Olympic level. Speaking of which, Democrats are feeling kind of smug, right, looking at this disarray within the GOP. Do you see the Democrats as unified only in comparison to the chaos, or is there actually more unity now within the Democratic caucus? Well, actually, I think there has been a high degree of unity, and one of the things we're kind of learning watching this happen is really how impressive uh, Nancy Pelosi's control of the Democratic caucus was in the last Congress, because she had a very, very slim majority, too, and she managed to hold them together through that. And I think now they're highly unified in refusing really to negotiate with the Republicans or throw any kind of lifeline to Kevin McCarthy. I can understand the psychological reasons for that. And I think even some of the short-term political reasons, I think for from the Democratic perspective, all this chaos is damaging to the Republicans and, and, and makes them look relatively good by contrast. I think it's some Point, and I hope it's soon they can begin asking themselves whether this makes sense for the American people and whether there might be some kind of a path to a compromise that would demonstrate that the House can get its act together. And we've seen it happen now in two state houses where with very, very thin majorities, we were able to see bipartisan agreement on uh, new leadership. Much harder to achieve that in the House of Representatives because it's so large and because not just the congressional representatives, but the staff people are so dug in and polarized at this point. But it would be that would be the most hopeful outcome here, I think. What do you make of the dynamics between former President Trump and Kevin McCarthy? How do you anticipate that power alliance might evolve? Donald Trump's put himself into a bit of a box here with Kevin McCarthy. I mean, he I, th- I think he's always appreciated most people who stood up to him and then he was able to break. And Kevin McCarthy is kind of the most prominent, in many ways, example of that, having briefly distanced himself from Trump and then really kind of humiliated himself by by bowing to him again. If Trump now backs away from McCarthy, that will be proof to everybody, including the people that have come back to him or stuck with him, that you really can't rely on Donald Trump to back you up, even when you've gone to extraordinary lengths to support him. And I think that's a really tricky position for Trump, as his support already is deteriorating among Republicans. On the other hand, he's in a tough spot sticking with McCarthy because the the basiest members of his base think of themselves as the most rabid anti-establishment Republicans and supporting Kevin McCarthy to them is an inexplicable pro-establishment act for Donald Trump to make. Idris, just picking up on James's point about the Republican base there, um, our friend Lee Drutman, who was on the podcast before Christmas, had a line in his newsletter about how too much base can break the speaker, which I thought was neat. It was a headline I wish I'd thought of myself. I think that's a good summary of, of what's gone on. I think a lot of this is the fact that Kevin McCarthy led the team to a very narrow victory. And that just enhanced the leverage that uh, some of these folks had. I think um, that's a bit unlucky on on his part. Things went against the Republicans in in ways that probably they could have anticipated. But, um, you know, it's quite hard to manage the political cycle. 
Um, so at, at the risk of sounding sympathetic to Kevin McCarthy, I think that he uh, he felt that he would have a, a majority of 15 or 16, at which point the pressure on the holdouts would have been so large that he probably would have gotten through and he would have been able to do what he wanted to do. That, I think, is part of the problem. But I think, you know, as James Bennett said, McCarthy's vacillation over the last few years has left a lot of Republican members basically unsure of who he is and what he stands for. Uh, he's a very affable guy. He, you saw that on the floor today. You know, he's smiling. He backslaps. He raises a ton of money. He raised a ton of money from the people who are now making his life hell. They like those aspects uh, of him, but I think that they don't get a sense when they speak to him that he's going to be completely straightforward with them. And that's a problem. I think that uh, if you contrast how Pelosi managed her majority, people, at least uh, what they report, is that you know whether Pelosi was delivering good news or bad news, and this is true of Mitch McConnell as well, they were relatively straightforward with you. Okay, I have two follow-up questions for you, Idris. First, I think it's weird that people describe affability by whether someone is a backslapper, which I think is a strange metric. But second, there's a lot of discussion about McCarthy, and we've spent a lot of this episode talking about the way that he's viewed within the party and the reasons why. But there is a substantive thing that's happening now, which is that he's offering more and more procedural concessions with no results. And I'm wondering when this is all said and done, whether he's the speaker or not, whether the result of those concessions is a Congress that just doesn't really work or that is constantly in a state of chaos because you never know if someone in charge one day will be in charge the next day because they might be immediately ousted. So what do you make of all these procedural concessions and how they add up? On your first point, I think backslapping and glad-handing both are, you know, signs of affability that have a tinge of insincerity attached to them. So it's not it's not a sort of, the sort of full-throated compliment, really, that, that you think it is. And then second, on the procedural concessions, uh, I, I think that they will make the life of the next speaker a lot worse. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons to think that the next Congress will be just very difficult to get any of the, even the basic functioning of, of government through. I, I think it's really maybe even less than 50-50, that Kevin McCarthy ultimately emerges as being speaker. But whoever does, I think, will have to accept the same concessions that McCarthy has made, and that will make it much easier for them, uh, for the Freedom Caucus, to call a vote of no confidence in the speaker when uh, they do something that they find displeasing. And a lot of their demands are also tied to extracting maximum leverage around uh, a debt ceiling uh, or a government budgetary uh, fight. So in the past with John Boehner, uh, Boehner needed Democratic votes in order to get those necessary bills through. Um, and that's what triggered these sort of votes of no confidence. If you make it a lot easier for those to go forward, um, it's going to be even harder for uh, the Republican speaker to do the necessary compromise that'll be needed. And that's just the basic functional parts of keeping the government open. The, the grand compromise uh, sort of legislation, I think, becomes even harder to imagine going through as a result of this. I think that there's a tendency to look to Congress for good reason as the center of action in Washington. 
But it's also worth remembering that there were these giant pieces of legislation that did make it through Congress last year, as we've discussed. There were these big um, achievements of the Biden administration and Democrats wrangling together votes for big bills, including the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically a climate bill. And these programs represent huge government investments that once Treasury and the IRS publish guidance will start being rolled out across the country. The infrastructure bill is already being rolled out, the one that was passed in 2021. So there actually is a lot of action from Washington as these big programs start to be implemented. And so you'll have this divergence where you have Congress having passed big pieces of legislation, states and companies and American industries starting to respond to those big pieces of legislation. And then separately, this somewhat ridiculous display of political theater playing out on Capitol Hill. Okay, well, let's leave that here for now. I suspect it won't be the last time we talk about the Republican Speaker of the House, whoever it is, in the 118th Congress. But before I let you guys go, I have a quiz for you. Earlier, we mentioned Calvin Coolidge, who was president 100 years ago during the last contested speaker election. As he ascended to the presidency in August 1923, we described him as an orator and a man who combines high ideals with a knowledge of practical limitations. So there. Question one. Coolidge first made his name on the national stage through his handling of a police strike in which city? Um, Buffalo, Pittsburgh or Chicago. Those are my three guesses. For, for some reason, Buffalo came first to mind. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm providing you with multiple choice and then you can select among them. But none of these may be right. Okay, well, can I pick three as well? <laughs> yeah, you can pick three as well. Uh, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. I'm afraid we're zero for six <laughs> oh, at the moment. The answer is, in fact, Boston. The police in Boston went on strike due to opposition to their attempts to form a union. Coolidge was then governor of Massachusetts, and he stood firm against the strikers and was apparently admired for his strong stance. This acclaim was a big contributor to him being picked as the vice presidential candidate for the 1920 election. So so there. Question two. Before it became customary for presidents to pardon turkeys on Thanksgiving, President Coolidge pardoned what mammal in November 1926. The live animal had been sent to the White House to be killed and eaten for Thanksgiving lunch before the president stepped in. A pig? Mm, Yeah, I guess a cow? Um, Or... Could be a duck. A duck. Are ducks mammals? So what, what mammals? They probably weren't cannibals. I think that's fair, Idris. I think that's fair. Yeah, I'm going to stick with pig is my final answer. All I can take from this is we're ruling out that it was a human being. I'm Again, null point, but I'm delighted the quiz has been so hard. It was a raccoon, in fact. To eat? Who eats a raccoon? You're kidding me. Uh, I've eaten fake raccoon. news. You have not have eaten you? raccoon. I have. No. I went to a roadkill cook-off in West Virginia once, and raccoon was on the menu, and I, I tried it. What did it taste like, and how was it prepared? I don't remember. I remember it being okay and, and better to eat than the bear, which was also on the menu. I would definitely have gone for bear over raccoon. Do you have raccoons in England? No, we don't. I mean, the composition no. of a raccoon is 98% garbage. I mean, they just go around eating trash. I don't know. I'd prefer a bear. Well, I, I have something to tell you about pigs. 
Um, Pigs are very clean. Coolidge apparently adopted the raccoon. He called it Rebecca and then kept it as a family pet. I've got a photo of Rebecca here on my computer screen, and I'll I'll tweet that out um, when the podcast goes live. So anyone curious to see Rebecca the raccoon will be able to do so. Well, you guys performed admirably. Charlotte, I noted that in the two Alaska episodes, you resisted the temptation to set and answer your own quiz. But it's a good return to form for you this week. Thank you. It's good. It's good to. No, she she tied. Tied at zero. I know. I've i finally. <laughs> yeah. I spent years trying to bring you down to my level, and I'm thrilled to have done so. Nil nil is a perfectly acceptable score, right? It's a very yeah, British soccer that. score. So yeah, yeah well okay. done, guys. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes a big difference to how many people can find Checks and Balance and, and listen to it. You can now explore our whole archive, if you'd like to do that, at economist.com slash checkspod. We really like reading your emails about the podcast and your pictures of where you're listening. And if you have views on what you think we ought to cover in the podcast in 2023, then please send those our way as well. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane, particularly if your name is Kevin McCarthy. We'll have more checks and balance next week.